If you're a politics junkie, you need to be listening to the Election Ride Home podcast. Every day at 5 p.m., former This American Life contributor Chris Higgins reports from the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction and what do the polls say? Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. There was one figure that I was definitely scared of. It was a blue and red, jester-like figure, complete with boots, a hat, a porcelain face, feet, and hands. It appeared to be a happy and harmless knick-knack, but every time I laid eyes on it, I would have terrible nightmares about the thing. My brother would later confess he also had dreams, and we always had the same dream. I'm Darren Marlar. And this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. And if you like what you hear and you want to hear even more, I am constantly posting content exclusively for patrons. Archive episodes of Weird Darkness, personal videos, full chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm in the process of narrating, and more. You can learn more and become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. This episode is brought to you by Send Out Cards. It's a service I've been using for years, I love it, and uh, I, I use it just about every day. You can give it a try for free at SendOutCards.com weird. Just remember to include that slash weird part. That's SendOutCards.com weird. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness. On March 9, 1929, the perfect murder occurred in New York City. To this day, it has never been solved, despite literally dozens of theories, not about the identity of the killer, but as to how the victim was actually killed. Our whole world and our universe might be a virtual reality matrix programmed by the supercomputer of a civilization of beings more advanced than we could possibly imagine. A colorful clown knick-knack terrorizes a young girl. And one of the most bizarre incidents in the history of LA law enforcement uncovers a link to one of the most heinous crimes in history. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. On 
On March 9, 1929, the perfect murder occurred in New York City. To this day, it has never been solved, despite literally dozens of theories, not about the identity of the killer, but as to how the victim was actually killed. Without question, the slaying of Isidore Fink is the ultimate unsolved murder. At 10.30 p.m. on the night of March 9th, laundryman Isidore Fink was working late and his neighbor, Lachlan Smith, heard the unmistakable sounds of a struggle. She rushed to Fink's door, terrified of what she might find. What she discovered were doors and windows locked from the inside, except for a small transom window about the front door. It hung open with its hinge broken. Smith called the police, who soon arrived on the scene. Unable to enter, though, they had to find a young boy who was small enough to fit through the transom and open the door from the inside. The key to the door was in the inside lock. Officers rushed in and found Fink's corpse on the floor. He'd been shot three times, once in the left hand and twice in the chest. Neighbors couldn't explain it. Fink was a cautious man. He lived and worked in a rough neighborhood and was fearful of being robbed. His doors and windows were always locked, and he never allowed strangers to enter his home or business. According to his landlord, Max Schwartz, Fink was a good tenant and never caused trouble. He had no enemies, and he never brought strange women home with him. Detectives were baffled as to why anyone would want to kill the unassuming man. But things got even more puzzling. There was no sign of robbery. Fink had money in his wallet, and his business cash was untouched. A search of the place found no murder weapon or spent cartridges. Other than a body lying in the middle of the floor, the room was undisturbed. Nothing was out of place, and nothing seemed to be missing. The police looked into the possibility that Fink might have been extorted for protection money by gangsters, a common practice at the time, but could find no one who saw Fink approached for money or knew about the business problems of any kind. Detectives had no motive for a murder that had been committed in what seemed an impossible manner. With no gun at the scene, suicide was ruled out. The gunshot on his hand showed powder burns, which meant that he had been shot at close range. However, no one could have fled the scene. The doors and windows were all locked from the inside except for the transom window, which was too small for an adult to climb through. The only fingerprints at the scene belonged to Fink. The murder had no motive, and no one could have committed it. Fink's murder was, by definition, the perfect crime. The New York Police Commissioner, Edward Mulroney, stated that the murder of Isidore Fink was unsolvable. After almost 90 years, that has turned out to be true. The captivating idea that we might be living in a three-dimensional holographic simulation has been put forward by various scientists. We'll explore this mind-boggling idea further and examine some intriguing questions. 
If we suspect that we are programmed beings living inside a simulation, is there any way for us to find out if this is true? Is it possible to change the outcome of this virtual game? Who could have created this matrix and for what reason? What are ancestor simulations? Our whole world and our universe might be a virtual reality matrix programmed by the supercomputer of a civilization of beings more advanced than we can possibly imagine. Physicist Alain Aspect conducted a most remarkable experiment demonstrating that the web of subatomic particles that compose our physical universe, the so-called fabric of reality itself, possesses what appears to be an undeniable holographic property. According to a recent theory proposed by Robert Lanza, author of Biocentrism, How Life and Consciousness Are the Keys to Understanding True Nature of the Universe, death might not even be real. We might think that we are an advanced species, but we possess limited knowledge of the world around us. We are moved by neurophysiological signals and subject to a variety of biological, psychological, and sociological influences over which we have limited control and little understanding. Suppose for a minute that we do live in a matrix and our reality is nothing but an illusion. What is the simulation argument? Nick Bostrom, professor in the Faculty of Philosophy at Oxford University and founding director of the Future of Humanity Institute and the program on the impacts of future technology within the Oxford Martin School presented his so-called simulation argument some years ago, and the theory is still widely debated among many scientists. If we omit the mathematical part of the argument, it starts with the assumption that future civilizations will have enough computing power and programming skills to be able to create what I call ancestor simulations, he says. These would be detailed simulations of the simulator's predecessors, detailed enough for the simulated mind to be conscious and have the same kinds of experiences we have. Think of an ancestor simulation as a very realistic virtual reality environment, but one where the brains inhabiting the world are themselves part of the simulation. The simulation argument makes no assumption about how long it will take to develop this capacity. Some futurologists think it will happen within the next 50 years, but even if it takes 10 million years, it makes no difference to the argument," writes Bostrom in his paper Do We Live in a Computer Simulation. Bostrom says the conclusion is that at least one of the following three propositions must be true. One, almost all civilizations at our level of development become extinct before becoming technologically mature. Two, the fraction of technologically mature civilizations that are interested in creating ancestor simulations is almost zero. Or three, you are almost certainly living in a computer simulation. If we suppose that the first and second suggestions are false, then we can assume that a significant fraction of these civilizations run ancestor simulations. If we work out the numbers, we find that there would be vastly many more simulated minds than non-simulated minds. We assume that technologically mature civilizations would have access to enormous amounts of computing power, so enormous in fact that by devoting even a tiny fraction to ancestor simulations, 
they would be able to implement billions of simulations, each containing as many people as have ever existed. In other words, almost all minds like yours would be simulated. Therefore, by a very weak principle of indifference, you would have to assume that you are probably one of these simulated minds rather than one of the ones that are not simulated, Bostrom explains. Bostrom also points out that his simulation argument does not prove that we are really living inside a simulation, because we possess too little information to determine which one of the three is either true or false. We cannot hope that the first assumption is false. Proposition number two requires convergence among all advanced civilizations such that almost none of them are interested in running ancestor simulations. If this were true, it would be an interesting constraint on the future evolution of intelligent life, Bostrom says. To many of us, option number two seems an unlikely scenario considering the vastness of the universe and the number of advanced extraterrestrial species we could encounter if we had the means to travel among the stars. Assumption number three is without doubt the most intriguing one. We could really be living in a computer simulation created by some advanced extraterrestrial civilization. What Copernicus and Darwin and Latter-day scientists have been discovering are the laws and workings of the simulated reality. These laws might or might not be identical to those operating at the most fundamental level of reality where the computer that is running our simulation exists, which of course may itself be a simulation. In a way, our place in the world would be even humbler than we thought, Bostrom explains. Why would an advanced civilization create a virtual world? If each advanced civilization created many matrices of their own history, then most people like us, who live in a technologically more primitive age, would live inside matrices rather than outside, Bostrom says. We could be a scientific experiment that is closely monitored by those alien beings who programmed the simulation. Even worse, we could be nothing more than a virtual game to our creators, in the same way we enjoy playing computer games. It's really impossible to tell. We have computers strong enough to simulate a basic civilization already. Soon, with enough upgrades, most home computers will be able to simulate an entire universe. If you need money to upgrade your current PC, you could get a Title Max loan. How could we know if we are really living in a matrix? If the simulators don't want us to find out, we probably never will. But if they choose to reveal themselves, they could certainly do so. If the architects of this virtual reality want us to know we are a holographic being living in a matrix, they can simply make a window pop up in our visual field with the text, you are living in a matrix, click here for more information. Another event that would let us conclude with a high degree of confidence that we are in a simulation is if we ever reach a point when we are about to switch on our own ancestor simulations. That would be very strong evidence against the first two propositions, leaving us only with the third, Bostrom says. How should we live in a matrix? If we knew the architect's motives for designing matrices, then the hypothesis that we live in one might have major practical consequences. But in fact, we know almost nothing about what these motives might be. We would run experiments, discover regularities, 
build models, and extrapolate from past events. In other words, we would apply the scientific method and common sense in the same way as if we knew that we were not in a matrix. To a first approximation, therefore, the answer to how you should live if you are in a matrix is that you should live the same way as if you are not in a matrix, Bostrom says. It would seem there is no way to escape the matrix, even if you think that you really managed to escape the matrix. How will you know it was not just a simulated escape? I don't know the best way to start my story. To place you in my young state of mind, I'll let you know I grew up in a house that was haunted, but it was almost fun, not scary. The lights would go on and off, things would move, and you could hear a woman humming when you stirred food in the kitchen. I thought everyone's home was like this and that everyone had a helpful humming cooking partner. I was not a fearful child. My older brother and I were about six or seven, the perfect age when you stayed over at your grandparents and had the freedom of snacks and other things that your parents limited. My grandmother loved clowns and had many glass cabinets to house them. I loved to look at them for they were bright colored. Some were glass, plush, porcelain. I guess this was before there was a widespread fear of clowns. Moving forward, there was one figure that I was definitely scared of. It was a blue and red jester-like figure complete with boots, a hat, a porcelain face, feet, and hands. It appeared to be a happy and harmless knickknack, but every time I laid eyes on it, I would have terrible nightmares about the thing. My brother would later confess he also had dreams and we always had the same dream. After every nightmare, I would wake up with my grandma accusing me of opening the glass door of the cabinet and taking the doll out to play. You see, it was always knocked over or on the floor outside of the case, on the other side of the room, far from its wooden glass home. You best believe I did not touch that clown. Fast forward about a year. My grandparents moved and my grandma came to our pleasantly haunted home. She wanted to give me something because she said she knew how I liked it so much. She brought and gave me the red and blue clown. I was calm after a moment and figured all will be well because it was just an object. Wrong. I remember waking up from a nightmare about the clown and walking to my brother's room as I often did when I wanted comfort. When I got into his room, he was wide awake. We both looked at each other and we knew we had both had the dream. I vaguely remember the conversation we had, but I know we planned to get rid of the clown. Now the scary part. All the electronics in my brother's room went off at the same time. There was your typical RC car and Hot Wheels toys going off with many noises. The worst was his Buzz Lightyear action figure repeatedly stating, to infinity and beyond. Every light-up toy went off and the room was filled with multicolor flashes. So as any young child would do, 
We ran for it and invaded my parents' room, yelling mommy and daddy the entire way. Luckily, my mother believed us, because the paranormal was, in a way, our normal. We burned and buried the figure, and I never saw it in my dreams again. I'm now 24. I do believe that the clown had something attached to it, and when it was brought into our active home, it got to come out and play. I still like clowns, but I'll never like that clown. I may or may not still be mad that my grandma gifted it to me. On March 10, 1928, Los Angeles mother Christine Collins was faced with every parent's worst fear – the disappearance of her child. Her son, Walter, had vanished. What happened next is one of the most bizarre incidents in the history of L.A. law enforcement, which eventually uncovered a link to one of the most heinous crimes in history. When Walter disappeared that day, the police initially suspected that he had run away. Christine, however, feared the worst. She refused to believe that her 10-year-old son would simply run off, and she came to the terrible conclusion that he had been kidnapped. She pushed the police into searching, and they began asking questions along the Collins Street and throughout the Lincoln Heights neighborhood where they lived. Finally, a neighbor, Mrs. A. Baker, claimed that she saw Walter in an automobile begging to be released. The car had been driven by two foreign-looking people. More neighbors came forward. They said that in the days before Walter's disappearance, an Italian-looking man and woman were asking for the Collins' address. But the leads went nowhere. There was no trace of the boy or his alleged kidnappers. After searching lakes, ponds, and the northeast part of the city, the case went cold. Christine was devastated but refused to give up hope. Months passed, and she devoted herself to her work in an effort to keep worries about Walter's fate out of her head. She slept little, lost weight, but did not surrender to the idea that her boy was lost forever. Then, five months after he vanished, Christine received the news that Walter had been found alive in DeKalb, Illinois. The boy was put on a train and sent to Los Angeles. The reunion of mother and son was celebrated as a massive success for the police department, which had recently been criticized in the papers for scandals caused by bribery and mistreatment of suspects. There was one problem. As soon as the boy stepped off the train, Christine realized that he was not her son. Captain J.J. Jones refused to listen to what Christine was claiming. He insisted that the boy had changed because of passing time and because of the traumatic conditions under which he had been living. Christine rejected his claims. She'd know her own son, no matter the circumstances. But Jones insisted that the LAPD would not have made a mistake. Trying to avoid humiliation, 
Jones forced Christine to take Walter home with her for a while to see if her memory would clear and she'd realize that he was her boy. Under pressure from the police, the press, and the public, Christine agreed to take the boy home with her. Subsequently, the police began to question Walter in hopes of finding his abductor. He was asked how he had escaped and how he had ended up in Illinois. Detectives and doctors were unable to get straight answers from him. He said little to nothing but insisted that he was Walter. Christine knew he was not her son, but she agreed to care for him because he had no one else. She still worked to prove that she was right because she didn't want the police to stop looking for her son. She took him to her family dentist, where she obtained the real Walter's dental records to show the difference between her son and the boy who was living in her house. The records did not match, so she took them to Captain Jones. The dental records proved to be no help. Jones still didn't believe her, or at least he claimed that he didn't. He concluded that Christine was only trying to humiliate the LAPD and he wouldn't stand for slander, especially from a woman. He knew an easy way to shut her up, one that had been proven effective before, and had Christine committed to the psychiatric ward of the General Hospital as a Code 12 internment. This was a method used by the police to lock up people they saw as being difficult. Christine was treated inhumanely in the hospital. She was drugged and abused so that she would come to her senses and admit that the boy found in Illinois was her son. She spent 10 days locked in the mental ward. She was finally released when Walter finally confessed that his real name was Arthur Hutchins Jr. His only excuse for the ruse? He saw a picture of Walter in the newspaper, saw a resemblance, and decided to seize the opportunity. He knew that if he pretended to be Walter, he'd have a one-way ticket to Los Angeles where he might meet some of his favorite stars and have a chance to make it in the movies. Even though Christine was relieved that the ruse was over, her son was still missing. She returned to work and her daily routine of working going home and hoping to learn Walter's fate. Meanwhile, in Wineville, California, a horrific series of events was taking place. It all began to unravel when a young woman named Jessie Clark decided to check up on her young brother, Sanford, who had moved to California two years earlier to live with their uncle, Gordon Stewart Northcutt, and his mother, Sarah Louise. Jesse had become increasingly concerned about Sanford's safety and his situation with Gordon. She decided to travel down from Canada and see what was going on at their chicken ranch. Her worst fears were soon realized. Gordon was a cruel, abusive man and he treated Sanford terribly. When she spoke up, Gordon slapped her. She tried to get Sanford to leave, but the boy was too afraid. Jesse fled the ranch, returned to Canada, and told her mother everything. Mrs. Clark immediately informed the police. When local police were told about the possible abuse, they made a visit to the isolated ranch outside of Wineville. When Gordon saw police cars approaching, he told Sanford to stall them as long as he could. The boy did as he was told. He was terrified of his uncle. Gordon and his mother fled and were not captured until they reached British Columbia. It was Sanford who put the police on their trail. 
The boy was traumatized by his life on the ranch and he told a blood-curdling story of the horrible things that had taken place there. Sanford confessed to being forced into committing murder by Gordon. He had made him an unwilling accomplice in kidnapping and murder. Boys were being held at the ranch, murdered with an axe and then buried. One of those boys, Sanford later confessed, had been Walter Collins. In shock and disbelief, the police allowed Sanford to lead them back to Wineville where they began searching for the remains of the dead boys. They found library books and clothing belonging to missing children in the chicken coop where Gordon and Sarah Louise had kept them locked up. A note was discovered, written by two brothers named Winslow who had gone missing only 30 miles from where Walter had been taken. The note read, Don't worry, we are fine. Sanford took the police to the graves, but the bodies were gone, only scraps of clothing and a few stray bones remained. Gordon and Sarah Louise had burned the bodies and scattered the remains in the desert after Jesse Clark had left the ranch without her mother. Some human bones and a blood-soaked mattress did turn up, but the Northcutts could only be charged with the deaths of the Winslow brothers, Nelson and Lewis, and a ranch hand named Alvin Gothea. On December 3, 1928, Gordon Northcutt confessed to the three murders but hinted that there had been at least four more. The authorities believed they killed at least 20. Sarah Louise Northcutt confessed to the murder of Walter Collins, but his remains were never found. Gordon was eventually hanged for the murders. His mother was sentenced to life in prison. As far as Christine Collins was concerned, Walter was still missing. Since his remains had not been found, she held out hope that he might still be alive. She traveled to the penitentiary to meet Northcutt and ask if his mother had truly killed her son. Even though the Northcutts had confessed to his murder, he told Christine that they had not killed Walter. Whether he was telling the truth or was merely taking advantage of her hope, we will never know. Gordon Stewart Northcutt was hanged on October 2, 1930, at San Quentin. He took whatever he knew to the grave with him. The murders became known as the Wineville Chicken Coop murders, and the slayings and the vanishing of Walter Collins inspired the Clint Eastwood-directed film Changeling, starring Angelina Jolie as Christine Collins. It is a highly recommended film. Christine Collins sued the LAPD and won a $10,800 lawsuit against Captain Jones for sending her to the psychiatric ward and for his insistence that Hutchins' boy was Walter. He never paid her and he was only given a four-month suspension for what he had done. As for Christine, she clung to the words that Gordon Northcutt had said to her from his prison cell and she never gave up hope that her son might be returned to her alive. She died in 1964, still refusing to believe that her son was dead. Sadly, Walter Collins never returned. If you want to hear more Weird Darkness, you might want to consider becoming a patron. You'll get archive episodes, personal videos, and more. Also, Marlar House patrons can now hear chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Currently, I'm narrating the horror novel Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis. 
and you can start listening right now from Chapter 1 if you are a patron, and you'll get new chapters to listen to as I record them until the book is finished and officially published. Then the entire book will disappear from the Patreon page, so you'll want to listen to the chapters while they are still available. Learn more about becoming a patron by clicking the link in the show notes, or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. I'd also like to give some thanks and shout-outs to those who have left podcast reviews recently. Walcomb said, Super entertaining. Darren has that awesome I smoke three cigars a day voice. The quality of production, from the clarity of sound to effects, are all great. More importantly, he focuses on content and not bias like other podcasts do. These are just good stories told by a master. And to that soy boy snowflake who got triggered by the hashtag please stand edition, I think I can speak for everyone and that we all sleep better at night knowing that they aren't listening. <laughs> Thank you very much, Welcome. I appreciate it. By the way, I do not smoke, never have. Roll Damn Tide from USA says, Nice episode length, great narration without overacting. Thank you for supporting our troops and respecting our flag. Yogaivaz said, Love this podcast. The stories are amazing. Kay Steins said, I really love scary stories. These are awesome and scary stories. Keep up the good work. Heart emoji. Zelly from the US said, This is a great podcast. I drive a lot, so I listen to several podcasts. This is one of my favorites. Darren has a great voice and cadence when telling his stories, and the stories themselves are awesome. And to show you I don't only share the positive reviews, Real Hatch Roaster says, Lame and generic content. Most stories can be found right on Google word for word. And he's right about that, and I do that with some stories because the authors have given me permission to do so. Uh, M. Twist from the U.S. said, The Dark Archives episodes are awesome, good stories, detailed and interesting, but a majority of the podcast is advertising the full stories on Patreon. And I save this one for last. Samuel Bonanno from the U.S. said, I'm blind, so I'm always super critical about which podcasts I listen to on a regular basis. This is one I can give my endorsement and stamp my seal of approval on. The stories are captivating. When I'm listening, I can see exactly what's going on in my mind's eye. I just became a patron, and the money is well worth all the content that's available. So whether I am cleaning or I'm just taking time to unwind, Weird Darkness is my go-to. I appreciate all the reviews. Thank you so much, uh, positive and negative. I still love seeing those reviews. And if you have a couple of minutes, I'd love for you to leave a review as well. And if you do, I might give you a shout-out in a future episode. This episode is sponsored by Send Out Cards. You can try it absolutely free at sendoutcards.com weird. That's sendoutcards.com slash weird. In fact, my brother should be receiving his birthday card from me right about now. Hey, by the way, next weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, March 16th through the 18th, I'm one of the sponsors for the Indie Horror Film Festival in DeKalb, Illinois. Uh, the Indie Horror Film Festival has returned with hopes of swallowing mortals whole and filling their souls with a thirst for blood and horror the Indie Horror Film Festival. It screens films from all over the world and brings the best of blood, gore, and horror to the big screen for you to enjoy. Three straight days of it. That sounds like something you'd be interested in. It's taking place next weekend, March 16th through the 18th, 
in DeKalb, Illinois. It's the Indie Horror Film Festival, and you can get the details at IndieHorrorFest.com. That's I-N-D-I-E HorrorFest.com. I do have a link to that in the show notes. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Fact or fiction? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. All stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The Disappearance of Walter Collins, The Real-Life Story of Changeling was written by Troy Taylor. Do we live in a computer simulation created by an advanced alien civilization was posted at MessageToEagle.com. Fear of a Clown was submitted directly to WeirdDarkness.com by Camille. The Locked Room Murder the unsolved case of Isidore Fink was written by Troy Taylor. Music in this episode is by Shadows Symphony. You can find them online at facebook.com slash shadows symphony. I also used some pieces from Midnight Syndicate. You can find a link to their website as well in the show notes. And if you like news, politics, and laughs, be sure to check out my other podcast at dailydoseofweirdnews.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness. <laughs>